Hello, and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and regulation. I'm Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm, a jo- and I'm joined, as always, by Richard Epstein, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU. Hello, Richard. Hello, Adam. So, Richard, on our last podcast, we discussed presidential power and the special counsel. Uh, this time, we're thinking about something a bit more concrete, so to speak, namely infrastructure. It's been in the news a lot during President Trump's 15 months in office. Last year, he signed an executive order to accelerate environmental reviews of infrastructure projects. Last month, his agency signed a document called a Memorandum of Understanding to implement his executive order on infrastructure. And last week, the House Natural Resources Committee held a hearing on what it called the weaponization of environmental laws. Now, I know these sorts of issues have been on your mind because you recently wrote a column on infrastructure development and environmental regulation for the Hoover Institution's Defining Ideas website. So why don't you tell us about it? Oh, this is the column I wrote some time ago comparing what it was to do a development in environmental law before we had environmental law and when we had today. And and what was very, very clear is that uh, the traditional view on this was that you just started a project, bulled your way ahead, and then when it was finished, you called it a day. And along the way, what you had to do was to cope with a whole variety of problems. And generally speaking, people got pretty good at figuring out how to repair breaks that took place in projects and so forth. So when they wanted to build this Trans-Alaska Highway back during World War II, uh, the whole thing took a matter of months to complete. There were certainly some dislocations and so forth. But generally speaking, working on these particular projects makes things go pretty quickly. More recently, there was a situation when the Santa Monica Freeway went down. And what they did is they suspended all relevant applicable environmental regulations, gave people an incentive contract, told them that they would be held responsible for their nuisances and their other kinds of Dislocation. And what happened is that the project, which might have otherwise taken several years to complete with massive social dislocation, was completed in a matter of months um, without any untoward environmental consequences. Uh, so the question that one wants to ask when you look at all of this is whether or not the elaborate procedures that we have in which we try to solve everything in advance are appropriate for environmental situations or whether or not what we want to do is to get rid of what I regard as the very dangerous precedent under NEPA of front-loading all of the requirements for inspection, examination, hazard consideration, and so forth, and delaying a project forever until those things are satisfied, then when you start to build it, you're still going to have to improvise because the unexpected will always come forward. Uh, So I think that the lesson that we can learn from the successes in infrastructure before uh, we had NEPA in place and the exceptions to it after NEPA is in place, that something very different has to be done in order to handle this. I want to make it very clear this is not an argument which says that we want to see serious pollution take place, that we want nuclear plants to blow up or anything of the sort. The question here has to do not with the dangers associated with pollution and similar kinds of activities. Rather, what it has to do with is the way in which you structure the remedial situations so as to get new projects on the road relatively quickly, have insurance coverage, liability rules, various kinds of inspections. And the most important reason to do this is every time you create a delay, uh, what you do is you manage to increase the hazards of existing dilapidated or dangerous kinds of structures, old pipelines, sending things by uh, truck or by rail, much more dangerous. And so what we really have to do is to understand that if we take into account all of these alternative hazards, we're better off in both directions uh, by simply having a major modification of what the of what the NEPA program uh, is and should be. Now, before I jump into all that, I just want to point out for our listeners, 
Um, I think it's a nice window into how quickly you work on these things. You said it was something you wrote a long time ago. By my count, you wrote it about two weeks ago, Richard. And I think that's, oh, a, really? that's a, nice, get- a, a nice window into how fast you move, uh, you move from one, one column oh, to the I, next. I mean, actually, I, I, you know what? I made the, I was thinking of an earlier column that I'd written on the same subject, right? Um, yeah, this, this one, I encourage the readers to listen to it or to read it is called Environmental Protection, uh, Protectionism Run Amok. Yes, um, which it certainly has. Uh, but I, I, to me, this has been a very long problem, Adam. I mean, I started off as a torts lawyer and just kind of do well, but I grappled for a second. And you know, 40 odd years ago, I tried to figure out what the law of nuisance looked like. And you realize that in many ways, it was very easy to state and very difficult to apply because nuisances come in all sizes, shapes, intensities, and distributions. And it's the remedial structures uh, that make the field so difficult. Private rights of action are of limited value. So you've got to bring the government in. And then when you've got to bring it in, you have to do it right. And starting in 1970, with the Calvert Cliffs case, um, what happened is the uh, judicial system, particularly in the District of Columbia, completely misunderstood how this thing worked. And it believed that every time you managed to stop a new piece of development, you were doing some kind of a social good, so kind of a social blessing. And all of that kind of that mentality has to be removed if you're going to be able to deal with trade-offs, alternative hazards, and taking into account the very serious risks that are associated with the depreciating infrastructure. Uh, depreciation is your enemy. It's doesn't seem very obvious from one day to the X. It's insidious. There's nothing dramatic. But if you let this un, unrepaired depreciation go for years, what you do in the end up with a terrible situation using inferior equipment with massive deferred expenses that you have to take over. And NEPA has essentially thrown the entire development process out of whack. So I'm going to turn it back to you now that you've reminded me that I've written about this more than once in recent times. Well, so we keep throwing around the term NEPA, but just for folks who are listening in who haven't studied this as closely as, as you have. I just want to unpack it for a minute. We're talking about the National Environmental Policy Act. It's a 1970 statute that directed the agencies to review the reasonably foreseeable environmental impacts of their actions, including not just things the government does itself, like building a, a new government building, but when the government signs off on a private sector project that a federal permit is required for, like a, a hydropower dam or a pipeline or something, agencies have to go through this. So there's the statute from 1970. There's the regulations, which are promulgated by the White House Council on Environmental Quality, a unit in the White House, kind of like the Office of Management Budget that has rulemaking power. And then the courts get involved with this. Um, in, in judicial review of the, either of the agency's final approval or disapproval of a project, or when somebody goes to try to block a project from even starting with, with some sort of suit for preliminary injunction. You're focusing back on this case from 19, oh, about 1971 or thereabouts called Calvert Cliffs, the f- sort of famous DC Circuit decision written by Judge Skelly Wright, which is, as, as you indicated and you spell out in your column, uh, directed agencies to go through a much more rigorous environmental review and opened the door to private lawsuits. You, you quote the line from the opinion where Judge Wright for the court says that the decision, quote, promises to become a flood of new litigation, litigation seeking judicial assistance in protecting our natural environment. Now, that's ironic because where I come from, floods are a bad thing, not a good thing. Um, but Judge, uh, Judge Wright saw otherwise. But thinking back to the original statute, Richard, um, I guess I have to ask, if the pre-existing tort law framework for this was so robust, then why, did, why do you think Congress felt it necessary to pass a special statute for it in 1970? 
Well, the framework was robust in an intellectual sense, meaning what you did is you targeted pollution and you were prepared to offer damages and injunctive relief. Uh, but in terms of the um, administrative side of it, private law actions were generally woefully incomplete. And if you started to look at things like, for example, the Santa Barbara oil spill, which took place in 1969, this was an ongoing disaster that fouled everything. And there was nothing that you could do to stop this thing after the things started to leak and so you had this spreading out and so people then launched to the opposite extreme saying if you can't do anything after one of these ruptures takes place uh, without having calamitous consequences we don't allow anything to happen until we've managed to cover all kinds of positions but that turns out to be every bit as dangerous in its own way because what it does is it means that you can't put newer safer technology in place in order to get rid of the older ones it's also I think one of the things to remember is if you start looking at the numbers of on failure rates, whether you're talking about automobiles, uh, whether you're talking about operations for medical stuff, whether you're talking about pipeline failures and so forth, uh, the great untold story in the United States in the last 50 years has been the massive improvement that have taken place with respect to each and every one of these measures. Uh, so that you're seeing is rapid declines in leak rates. And so what happens is you have this following kind of irony. The technology gets better, which means that you can move a little bit faster without taking any serious risk, replace inferior technology. And what they do is they say that we have a, quote, mere procedural device, i.e. you can't do anything until you've told us everything. Now, an injunction like that is the most powerful relief that's imaginable. And traditionally at common law, the rule was you didn't give an injunction against a project until there was actual or imminent peril. One understands that that's too late. So what you want to do is to figure out how it is that you can do the um, inspections and safety work uh, in, on a parallel track at the time that you're doing the development work. And that means, in effect, once you realize that you're going to eliminate a very serious hazard by getting rid of, for example, transportation by truck or by rail, you should be eager to put the pipelines in place. And then as they go up, you make sure that Private inspectors, insurers, government inspectors, owners look at these kinds of things to see whether or not there's anything untoward. But if you simply enjoin the whole thing before anything is done, uh, then what happens is uh, you never get the project finished for years, so all of these older ills continue to fester. So what you need to do is to figure out how to change the balance. And uh, what happened with the NEPA statute with two things. One is Calvert Cliffs kind of created private rights of actions where anybody could go to court and stop this. There's nothing whatsoever in the statute which talks about private rights of action. The original statute was consultative. Everybody talked and the government decided. And then when they got into court, they made up a second system, a remedy known as vacator, which means that you could stop the project until the final niggling detail of the proposal had been worked out. And by the time you stopped it, they had to go back to square one again because now there's new information that has to be taken into account. And so it was this judicial overlay on an overly ambitious statute, uh, which has created the current logjam. And then the deferred maintenance in the United States on infrastructure for vital things like roads and bridges and so forth is in the trillions of dollars today. You could cut that cost in half, in my judgment, if you had a more rational uh, approach towards these approvals. Well, so this might be a, a good opportunity for me to throw in my own bit of autobiography on this. You talked about how you got into this this subject. I, I'm just an 
Well, I, I entered uh, through the other door. I, the first chunk of my legal career was spent as an infrastructure lawyer, uh, mostly doing pipeline and other in energy infrastructure work for one of the big law firms. And so for six years, I, my, my office was basically a library of NEPA documents. I, I mean, I was doing a lot of work regarding NEPA analysis of pipelines and, and deepwater ports. Um, and so I saw it from that perspective. And, and looking back on it now from, from an academic perspective, I'm, I'm much more of the mend it, don't end it school. I actually think NEPA is, is, is as written a good statute, not a perfect one, but a good one. I think now that we've had 40 years of experience, almost 50 years of experience, it's, it's time for some reform. And I can circle back to that in a minute. But I have to say on its face, I think it puts forward a pretty sensible framework regarding or sorry requiring agencies to think seriously about the possible alternatives to a project to try their best to to, to think about the reasonably foreseeable uh, impacts environmental impacts of the project now the problem is where you draw lines right what alternatives are really reasonable alternatives which possible impacts are reasonably foreseeable impacts and that becomes difficult Congress probably needs to draw clearer lines there. But on the private rights of action, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I look at, I've always looked at it and thought it's pretty straightforward. Uh, NEPA sets up some factors for the agency to consider under arbitrary and capricious review of Section 706 of the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, the courts require the, and Congress require the agencies to consider all the factors that Congress has prescribed. It seems pretty straightforward to me that the agency should be reviewed in, in judicial review uh, of the work it did in, in, in identifying reasonable alternatives and, and their environmental impacts, like the, like the statute requires. Where am I getting that wrong? Well, what's getting wrong there, Adam, is I think that the word arbitrary and capricious as it appears in Section 706 has two completely different meanings, and you're never quite sure from one day to another which of them was inappropriate. So my most recent Hoover column dealing with what I regard as some genuine outrages in the Securities and Exchange Commission, when they use the words arbitrary and capricious in connection with sentencing somebody, they said, if there's the slightest reason to believe that they've done the right thing, our course will be especially deferential to everything that goes on because we have no idea of what's happening and we want these wonderful regulators to do it. And so then what they do is they find some niggling um, offense and they impose a draconian sentence. And at least if you take the word of the uh, District of Columbia panel that decided this particular case, the case Lord Sia, um, this was perfectly rational. It managed to pass arbitrary and capricious. So that's the one standard. On the other hand, there's a standard which comes back from State Farm, uh, which is a safety case, which says a decision is arbitrary and capricious if you consider something that is irrelevant or ignore something that is relevant. Now you put that standard against a major environmental project where there are thousands of moving parts that take place. What it could be understood to say is you're arbitrary and capricious unless you bat a thousand. And so what happens is the same word could either mean low review or very strict review. And you never know from one day or the other, from one court to another, which you're going to get. Uh, so you talked about the pipeline cases. You know, I worked as a consultant for an operation known as GAIN, which is the support group for some of the pipelines being put together. And it turns out you saw the objections that were being raised in connection with the um, DAPL, the Dakota Access Pipeline, and with the Bayou Bridge Pipeline. Uh, basic vital links inside the literature. And these were nonstop objections going one form to another uh, where the kinds of things that were going to provoke shutting down a pipeline uh, were 
well, you've done a risk analysis. If the whole pipeline blows up through a small leak, uh, will it leak a half a mile? Well, that's not enough. You have to tell me what's going to happen if it goes three quarters of a mile. So what you do is you take probabilities that will never occur, you know, one in 10 to the 10th, and then you try to figure out how you're supposed to remediate them. And if you can't do that, then you can't put the pipeline into operation. Well, now, fortunately, Judge Boesberg, when he faced this thing, I think he was much – he said this was a close case, which I regarded as absurd. But he let the pipeline go into operation. It's now been in operation for you know nine months or so. There's not been a single problem associated with it. You still have to file yet another one of these NEPA spaces. And there's at least a remote chance that you may want to try to shut it down, which would be an absolute catastrophe from every point of view. And when this thing took place in the Bayou Bridge area, we had a situation where the judge – I was really upset about the fact that you had to build the pipeline, take over about 180 or 200 acres of land to put this thing through, and were even prepared to buy compensating space and convert it into wetlands so as to make sure that there was no net loss. She enjoined the project. And what happened is the uh, applicable parties, they went to the Fifth Circuit, and they got the injunction overturned uh, so that they were allowed to complete the pipeline. Well, these things seem to me to be <clears throat> so far off the uh, mark pace so that when you're talking about this, the correct standard for rational review is these guys get a large number of issues. You're not concerned whether they're right or wrong. You want to figure out whether they're doing something in good faith. And if they are, then you let the building go forward understanding full well that if the pipeline company makes a mistake and there's a leak or some damage, then they're going to have to pay for the damage that they cause either to the public or to the private parties that they injure. So that's what it is. Arbitrary and capricious is a very slippery term with two completely different pedigrees. Well, it's true. It, it's a pretty slippery term. Um, in the administrative law context, you're right. You point out the State Farm case where the, the real standard that the court enunciated there was what we call hard look review. Did, did the agency take a hard look at the factors it was required to consider? Now, of course, if agents – if sorry, if courts – go too far with that and assert it too aggressively, then it really does start to have the, uh, the, the, the bad impacts that you identified. But here's what I think about when I think about these issues. Um, I think about things like the Fukushima, uh, the Fukushima nuclear uh, facility uh, issue um, with the um, – what's it called? The, um, the tidal wave, the, the tsunami in Japan. Tsunamis. There was um, you know, just a few years ago when BP had the Macondo well blowout in the Gulf of Mexico. And I wrote a Federal Society white paper on this at the time. Back then I called it Thinking About the Practically Unthinkable where I quoted all the officials from both of those companies and others who always after these events occur say, well, nobody could have imagined – this happening. And in one sense, that's true. But in the other sense, I think we shouldn't let people off so easily. I think the fact that NEPA requires agencies and, and the projects themselves to at least try to think in advance and think creatively about what could go wrong is a useful exercise. Um, if only because the impacts on these things, if they occur near somebody's property, somebody's home or, or farm, could be immense. It, when it, the thing, the line I think about when I think about these things is something a smart conservative friend of mine, one of my editors at one of the magazines said, he said, he said, Adam, on the one hand, I understand that NIMBY, not in my backyard, is a bad thing. On the other hand, I understand that as a conservative, we should like backyards. Um, we, should, we, should, uh, we should like private property. We should like people being safe in their homes and in their farms and so on. And so I think forcing the government and these companies to think seriously about possible impacts, even far-fetched impacts, 
I think is sensible. It's just a question of how do you translate that sensible impulse into a workable framework? And like I said, NEPA just isn't there yet. It's too vague of a framework and it's too susceptible to mismanagement. But I'd say if Congress could find a way to amend the statute to limit review and focus more on on the agencies identifying alternatives and thinking less about how for each individual alternative, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, I think that would still be a useful exercise. What do you think? Um, I think you're a bit too optimistic about the ability to have that kind of reform. But first of all, let me go back to the Fukushima situation to indicate what I think the serious problem is. Calvert Cliffs, which we've mentioned many times on this show already, was the question of slowing up the development of a new nuclear facility in the United States. We have not put online a new nuclear facility in the United States since 1977, a period of over 40 years. What happens is the existing plants are now at the edge of or beyond their use for life, and most of them in all sense have to be shut down because there comes a point when modification can't take place. Uh, so what happens is when we start to be really, really tough on the creation of new plants with superior technologies, we leave these old plants and continue in operation where they are a real terrible kind of danger. And so what happens is the environmental law, uh, which then feeds into NEPA, is a situation which gives extremely lax treatment to modifications of ex existing grandfathered facilities and an exceptionally tough view of the new ones. And so the way I would put it is, if you want to announce that I'm going to put this new plant in and take that old plant out, and then you just give a standardized nuclear plant of one kind or another, you approve the project and then you watch it. So to give you an illustration of how it goes, uh, the French system essentially supplies all of its stationary power uh, through nuclear energy. They develop a standard design and then they tweak it for the different locations where they put it into place. The Germans have shut down their system. They decided to make solar primary. They end up dirtying burning huge amounts of dirty coal, and everything starts to go off. Uh, so what I, I think, Adam, is that uh, you're making a serious mistake in assuming that you want all of this kind of review to be front-end loaded. I want some of it to be front-end loaded, uh, but most of it to take place on site. So if you look at the way in which architects work on you know big, complicated buildings and so forth, they put forward a set of plans, they get themselves a set of permits, and then every week what happens is the architect and the contractors and the owners meet and they talk about problems and they fix it. Then the inspectors come in and say, you better do this and you better change that. And so what you do is you Instead of front-loading uh, all of the remedial stuff, you distribute it evenly over the life of the process. And that's the original mistake in NEPA. And then it's quadrupled when you combine it with everything else. And as far as NIMBY is concerned, um, the problem, not in my backyard, is it's the other guy's backyard that you don't want him to build in. And so what you do is you get these zonings, which become me-first operations. I have my wonderful plot here, and I have built my nice house, and I'm going to make sure that nobody next door can build a house just like mine or one that's any bigger. And since they don't have to pay any compensation for the limitations what they put on the neighbors, what you do is you get the incredible kinds of screw-ups that you have in places like New York and San Francisco where the ability to get new construction, particularly in San Francisco, is so acute that the rents go through the roof that everybody has to start to leave town and so forth. I mean, I think, in effect, the government is an absolute right role to play uh, to make sure that nothing is going to be a precipitate disaster. And so if they want to regulate the way in which you put scaffolds on new buildings, I'm absolutely in favor of all of 
that, but I'm not in favor of them saying, well, you can't build the building here because somebody down the road is going to say it's going to block my view of the water. And it's that kind of transformation of the law of nuisance so that any negative effect that anybody else does is going to block you is what makes NIMBY so dangerous. And what you have to do is if you want to have public enforcement of traditional nuisance law, you can't expend the substantive issue so that nuisance law simply includes anything that a neighbor does that I don't like. Now, Do you agree with that? I'm not sure how useful the comparison to buildings uh, are when we're talking about um, they fall down. They fall down, but buildings are not nearly as complex as some of the major energy infrastructure we're talking about, like a nuclear facility. And they're not. And, and if a building falls down, by and large, it won't be nearly as as, as dangerous with such potential environmental impacts um, as as say a nuclear facility uh, melting down or a hydropower project failing or a pipeline exploding. Um, I, I think the, the 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 risk of potential harm to the public is degrees of magnitude larger, uh, at, at well, least, than, than buildings are. This, that's where I think we – I think the degrees of magnitude larger of keeping existing facilities operating when they're past their useful life. Well, so take, for example, we still can't store our nuclear waste underground in Nevada because of all the veto gates that put into place. So it sits in surface pools covered by water near the facilities because nobody's figured out how to dispose them. Uh, so the problem about being very tough on new stuff is you have to be very lax on old stuff, which means that you're getting the risk-reward ratios exactly upside down. And so that's what the proposal was to say, look, I'm going to take X plant out of service if you let me put Y plant into service. That's enough for me to say, let's get this thing going. On the French model, that we have a well-established set of nuclear power plant design features, and we incorporate them. And then the only questions you have to ask is, what about the choice of site, and how do you have to tweak the plan for the landscape? And so forth. Much easier, I think, to do that than to say we're not going to we're going to front load this whole thing because sometimes this front loading takes five, seven years. And you know, NEPA was supposed to be a project would take a little while to get it done. But when you have the threat of an injunction, everything else essentially becomes completely backed up. And so that's why I gave you the example of the Santa Monica Freeway. Uh, it was much safer to build that thing in four months, and it's a complicated project than it would have been to have five years of permitting and five years of construction. On the issue of injunctions, the Supreme Court returned to this issue a few years ago in a case called Monsanto uh, on the standard for injunctions in NEPA cases. It's only a few years old, and I'm hoping that the court announcing that rule, and it was a seven-to-one decision, uh, will hopefully get the attention of the lower courts and calm them down. But maybe that's too optimistic. The nuclear waste issue, that's actually one of the areas where I have focused on this in my writing. I I published a piece years ago in in the New Atlantis. It's a a quarterly journal I'm fond of, um, where I, I, I cited the government's review of the Yucca Mountain mountain project as, as as one of the places where the process really has broken down for a variety of reasons. And you're right. It leaves us with the with the even less optimal situation where uh, where spent nuclear fuel and high level uh, radioactive waste is being stored on site. And it's obviously not the, the optimal scenario. I, I just want to say, you know, putting this in the bigger picture, for me, these sorts of issues are a lot like the financial crisis issues we talked about in our first podcast or other issues like pandemics, climate change, uh, the impacts of terrorist attacks. These are areas where the government is forced to grapple with what, what we now call black swan events, things are, that are by and large fundamentally unknowable because they haven't happened yet. Um, and they're unlikely to happen. But I think it's important for us to come up with some sort of regulatory framework where we at least require the agencies to try to think creatively about them without punishing them, without punishing the agencies for not being uh, fortune tellers. 
Well, with respect to the financial crisis, I don't think it was a black swan event. I think it was a crisis waiting to happen because what we did is we had two great ambitions. This is an unrelated topic, but worth mentioning. We developed this notion, mistakenly in my view, that home ownership was regarded as an ideal when for most people apartment living with rental makes much more sense. Then to make that ideal good, what we did is we subsidized the heavily all of these sort of home ownerships. In order to do that, we had to get people making risky loans. And then the government became a, 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 a essentially an insurer or a purchaser of last resort on these policies. And the whole thing blew up in 2008. Um, I think that people who understood what was going on realized that this was going to happen for a very, very long period of time. And what's so extraordinary about it is we're 10 years past it and we still haven't figured out how the government should intervene in respect to home mortgage market. Markets. Fortunately, things have been a little bit better now, uh, but you're not talking here about black swan events. You're talking about something which is likely to happen once a decade unless you fix it out. Now, the other thing about NEPA that I wanted to mention, which we've yet to talk about, is one of the reasons why this process is so infuriating is the way in which the veto points is not just one point from one agency. Uh, when you work in the federal government, it turns out you may have to get the approval of four or five agencies. And one of the things that the executive order tries to do is to say that there's a master agency that's in charge of all of this stuff, so you don't have to go through the same process in five different places. But even so, it's going to be slower if you have five agencies participating with one in control than if you had only one agency doing it. But there are also state NEPA plans that are put into place everywhere. Uh, so, for example, for all the pipelines that we had, you had to get approval from the public utility commissions in North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, and Illinois um, in order to get these things up. And all it takes in those cases is for the slowest guy to block the procedure. That is, pipelines are much more vulnerable to NEPA abuses uh, than a hydroelectric plant because that's in one jurisdiction. Uh, the pipeline goes through many jurisdictions. And if you shut it down at one point, you can't get the oil from place A to place B. Uh, and so the federalism issues in these cases actually present, I think, another level of problem. And it would be better to have some degree of coordination uh, so that states could not put vetoes in place, which is what's happening in the Northeast right now. They're very hostile to new pipelines on abstract levels. And whatever you want to say about drilling, pipelines are much safer than drilling. They're much safer than hydroelectric plants because they're controlled environments built with very high technical standings now where the level of risk associated with their operation and failure is down by 80 or 90 percent in the last 30 or 40 years. Well, the multi-agency and federalism issues are definitely huge. I saw that firsthand as a practitioner. We're, we were <laughs> practicing not just before FERC, but the Army Corps of Engineers, the Interior Department, the Coast Guard, the state agencies that are doing the Clean Water and Clean Air Act reviews, and on and on and on. This is something that Congress actually tried itself to tackle in the 2005 Energy Policy Act, where they amended the Natural Gas Act to require greater uh, coordination, a single record, more more uh, precise and efficient judicial review of the state agencies' decisions administering these federal permits. I think it's it, the, the end product ended up being pretty disappointing in practice. The statute in practice never really lived up to Congress's dreams, and so while I'm I'm happy to see the, the uh, Trump administration. Uh, trying to move forward on this with the executive order and the MOU. I mean, we'll have to see how it plays out in practice. But I think with that, uh, won't we bring this to a close? Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us for Infrastructure Week on Reasonable Disagreements. Be sure to check out the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, including Uncommon Knowledge with Peter Robinson, 
Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, Area 45 with Bill Whalen, and of course, The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.